0: So last week you were talking about this Pro Tools class that you were jumping into, and you said the syllabus was like, "Look, I hope y'all don't have too much stuff planned." Yep. So are you finding yourself as busy as you thought you'd be with this?
1: Everything, every part of the day is accounted for. Yeah.
0: At every part of your of your days. Yeah, days.
1: I've had to regiment things out in order to get through it, but um, so far, what I've been able to get from the syllabus is each week we're going to have about sixty to seventy pages of reading. Mm. And then we'll actually be putting things into practice. But whereas in the first semester, we just had one project at a time, this one we will be working on three and four different things at a time. It has so, to be a drag to
0: read about sound, whatever, and not actually do toast. it. It's dry as toast. It is dry as toast. It, that would be like reading about playing the bassoon instead of doing it. Right. Which I get, but
1: Yeah, hire a hire a barbershop quartet and instead of having them sing they bullshit about harmony.
0: <laughs> so what so but but any any little morsels are you have you grabbed things that you've been able to apply to other things from, yeah. from this? You
1: know, just little production tips um about mixing primarily, trying to break things up so that the uh, things sound more interesting in your headphones, you know, mm-hmm. sure. sure. Things like that. Well, it's good. You, We're you, keep in mind this is week two Mm-hmm. of the second course so it's week two of how many weeks 12 oh so
0: we'll we'll, we'll see how you I'm feel still about uh, week eight. i'm still over on the <laughs> i'm
1: still over in the baby pool
0: well you know who won't be giving any production tips on any major things as far as i can tell anytime soon is will smith you hear about his 10 year sentence 10 years yep <laughs> people over I'll, I'll, i'm gonna i'm gonna just speak plainly speak my truth people overreacting over all of it and making it so much bigger of a deal than it actually is, I think contributed to this. I think this is this was the Academy's way of uh, pacifying a lot of the internet you talking think? and yeah. all of that. I mean, what do you think? Do you, do you think he deserved 10 years stay out for bruising the man's ego more than he
1: bruised his the face? Best, the best response I saw online to it was, why is he complaining about not having to attend this yearly boring sure. work event?
0: Sure, sure, sure. <laughs> I hear that. There's, look, there's always a way to to, to turn it around and into a good. But I, the, you know, the the first thing Dell said, I I didn't even come up with this. The first thing Dell said when we were looking at the news about it was that black folks are punished more harshly because it's their way of saying that we really didn't belong in the space in the first place. Mm -hmm. I
1: mean, well, you know, it's true. If you want to look back at uh, Neil Simon, Roman Polanski, you know, they have all sorts of weird, and I don't even know these folks, not by name you don't, anyway. You don't know Neil Simon. Um, you you don't. Okay. Maybe maybe
0: the face of the the role of the movie, but these these are folks who have done worse than not Neil Simon.
1: Not Neil Simon. Woody Allen. I'm sorry. Oh, of course.
0: Yeah, he married his stepdaughter or something.
1: And uh, Harvey, what's his? Uh, he hasn't been in the news recently. I forgot his name. Harvey Weinstein. There you go. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, there it's worse for them. And look, they're still. And they were talking about, I am legend
0: too. So what's going to, oh, <laughs> you know, what you doing out here, Fred. <laughs> so wait, so is that, because look, 10 years is a It'll long time. It'll be Fred time.
1: looking for him.
0: Ten... Oh, look, <laughs> 10 years is a long time in Hollywood. So, yeah. you know, someone like Will Smith, who has uh, been a part of so many different types of things over the entire course of his career, he's, he's, uh, the next 10 years couldn't happen to be the decade that he decided to do nothing, all of the different movies and films and and stuff he's always involved with. So you can't tell me that he won't be nominated for something, maybe even an Oscar in the next 10 years, considering the amount of work that we've known him to do.
1: Yeah. But this, this doesn't, the expulsion doesn't keep him from getting one, does it?
0: No, but that's what I'm saying. So, so are we going to have the, the oscars in in 2026 where will smith is nominated for something and wins but can't be there and that's when this story circles back around and everyone remembers what probably happened five years ago or uh,
1: according to the way the simulation has gone thus far it seems like that <laughs> will be the way that it goes
0: yeah well yeah i mean I, I just wanted to touch on that before we really got into anything because i was really shocked by that and you know the the idea of being uh punished for something that isn't really that big of a deal is something that I can speak to, uh, personally, but I, uh, I, I wouldn't have done it. I, I wouldn't have done it at the same time. Come on, 10, 10 years, not attending the awards. And now I think they're even talking about him returning the award. What would, wow. I'm not even, and, and if that happened, this is the last week we're talking about this at all for real. I promise if we, if we come back in a week's time, if the news has come out that he's given back. The Oscar. What, what will be your, your thoughts on that? Will that be too much? Will, will, will that be an overreaction? I would say so. This,
1: this just seems like one of those things where your mom keeps coming back and lays more discipline on you mm. you know like oh and and i'm still upset and now you're gonna do this too much
0: no not not even a mom but <laughs> maybe a significant other yeah huh because remember five years ago uh, no, yeah. no, you, yeah, you, see, you, and i can say that because that's me i'm the one that brings stuff what up. do you got what do you got to say <laughs> about that <laughs> all right hello everyone good evening it's, it's evening for us anyway right now this week's uh downbeat is gonna come from now justice katanji brown jackson so you know before we even get into it, Scout, what's this podcast called? Queen. There are all sorts of opinions and narratives uh, that exist in the world. And I think it's, it's important to think about as many of them as possible. Before we even get into this, I want to offer, uh, I'll, I'll say what, I'll sandwich this whole thing by saying this, I'm praying that Judge Katanji Brown Jackson softens the heart of the conservative majority that's on the bench. Because from my perspective, the way the system is set up, this is something to pacify us, not a person who can actually impact change right now, but someone who can uh, inspire in us a, a sense of uh, celebration because of the historical nature of her becoming the first black woman, Supreme court justice, how that will pacify us and keep us from thinking about even for a little bit, the fact that the system is not built for her to make immediate change, not that's uh, directly impactful to the everyday person mm-hmm. anyway, especially considering the way the court is stacked. But anyway, yeah. it. Well, I mean, what? no, I have go to, ahead.
1: I have to look at it in all positivity because, you know, she did replace a white man mm-hmm. and it doesn't, Change the balance of the court, right? So, will she have an impact that way? No, but let's see how she yellowcutes. Let's see how she, you know, what her dissents are like. Is that what they call it? A dissent. A what Dissent. Yeah. Okay, see yeah. what those look like. So yeah. Let's see. Let's see if she's able and, to change. And, minds.
0: and yes, the court of popular opinion and how that can be impacted by things like uh, dissenting messages from uh, folks on the court that is impactful. That's not nothing. So, mm-hmm. you know, I, I will acknowledge that. And, not but, but, and it is what it is when it comes to the numbers and how the votes might typically right. roll out. Anyway, let, let's listen to a little bit of um, uh, her speech after the con- uh, confirm
1: To be sure, I have worked hard to get to this point in my career and I have now achieved something far beyond anything my grandparents could have possibly ever imagined. But no one does this on their own. The path was cleared for me so that I might rise to this occasion. And in the poetic words of Dr. Maya Angelou, I do so now while bringing the gifts my ancestors gave.
2: I am the dream and the hope of the slave.
0: Those are the heavy words to me right there where, and you know, we get this standing ovation from everyone there, the the I am the dream and the hope of the slave. Before I, I we, we get into that specifically and some of the commentary surrounding it, one thing I'm noticing right now that I didn't notice the first time I listened through this, uh, Judge Ketanji Brown Jackson listed off, you know, some of her predecessors and all of her um, uh, uh, role models and the folks that came before her. You know, listing uh, black uh, Supreme Court justices of days past, but she left somebody out. <laughs> there's a, there's one black man who's been on the bench yeah. who she did not mention. Yeah. Anyway, so you know that 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 speaks enough. I, I don't have to add to that, but it's that idea of. A black woman again getting to the top court being the dream of the slave one of the uh past guests here on triloquy um is someone named t this is someone who um and and i'll uh, i think it's opus i I can't guess the, the the opus right now but uh t is someone who thinks about uh, city planning. You know, they're getting a, a doctorate right now in, in urban planning, urban development, and, and and is always thinking about the idea of cities and the role that uh, cities and government play in liberation and oppression. Just someone whose opinion is uh, one that I really respect and is very learned on, on the matter. Uh, their response to this was something that I wanted to share with everyone. This is on uh, their Instagram. T says, one thing about it, when the state faces a crisis, of legitimacy negro liberalism particularly the representation matters branch of the regime is the state's most sinister Weapon. I think that's that's something very interesting, because I feel like that's what we're seeing right here with the confirmation of the first black Supreme Court justice. Um, So concerning the comment, you know, when the state faces a crisis of legitimacy, when it comes to the whole proud to be an American doing my Mm -hmm. civic duty voting sort of culture that. Uh, the punky Brewster era may feel that is obviously gone now at least from my perspective do you feel like the state as it were the United States is facing a crisis of legitimacy as you know as as T is speaking to here considering all the people who may not trust the vote the people who
1: don't vote sure and people that all of a sudden are looking at the Supreme Court as not having the um, uh, the same, a pedestal status, I guess, but it just goes to show you the number of different perspectives. Uh, because for some people, everything is working just fine. Mm-hmm. Other people see the issues and don't know what to do to change it. And then there are those like T, who have the perspective of, you know, this this is not helpful. But if I looked at it that way, I would fall into despair. I can't. I I can't think about it like that. Mm. I can't. I can't go the Complete cynic route yet. I have to believe that it's good that Katenji is there. So, Uh, because, you know, I think back to Sandra Day O'Connor, you know, the first woman mm. on there. So she probably faced the same thing. I mean, was she going to have a real pendulum sway? Probably not, but she was there. She was, at least, at least we had her, you know?
0: So, Connecting this to the arts, specifically to the Western classical spaces, the radio, the orchestras, opera houses, the conservatories, do your opinions, when it comes to the court, transfer into those spaces? Meaning, do I think classical music is at a crisis? Right. When it comes specifically to legitimacy, you know, Mm -hmm. that, that, that idea of this being something legitimate and not something fabricated for the sake of... Some sort of racist structure, classist structure, whatever. You know. Again,
1: I'm thinking about different perspectives because from where I sit, I can see T's perspective. I can see your perspective, and I also have my own. You know. And from my perspective, I don't think we've hit quite crisis yet.
0: Yeah, I I have to agree with T. And again, I, I approach this topic in this conversation uh, carefully because there's someone who outright did not support this new nomination who we're going to be speaking to in the last movement. So, oh, that you know, guy. so I, I don't, <laughs> so I, I don't, I don't want to make it sound like I'm, I'm uh, completely opposed to this woman. I don't know her. And, and by what, you know, the paperwork and all the graphs that they put on the internet say she's more qualified than many of the other justices exactly. on the bit. Exactly. So I'm, so I'm, I'm not trying to diminish the historic moment, you know, much less how qualified she is as much as I want to say, I hear folks like T when we're talking about the crisis and the suffering legitimacy of the United States, you know, and, uh, in addition to being conditioned into things like reparations not being a viable Damn. option you know we we're many of us are dealing with the crisis of uh, subprime student loans you know what if all of these loans were for homes they would have something to take from us a way to continue that oppression but mm-hmm. you know especially right now with the moratorium on uh, student loan, payments you know they're, they're, that's that's a system of control that is not necessarily you know being actively inflicted right now but there's that whole uh situation look you take race out of it you have middle class people and poor people out here paying more taxes than the richest people in the world mm-hmm. so that they can go fly their uh spaceships out and j- just to say they did or or whatever you know so when when we talk about the crisis that we're in and the way that uh Events like this pacify some people. I think that critique and and that way of seeing it is valid. I think two things can be true at this at once. We can mm-hmm. we can celebrate and and honor a historic moment. I mean, I don't I I don't want to be Katanji Brown Jackson. You know, I don't want to have that pressure on my back. The you know maybe there's aren't there aren't stresses of ever looking for another job or. <clears throat> Sure. You know, any anything like that, but uh, and I, you and know, no but, dis- but it's a stressful job, I'm sure. So right. I don't envy her in that regard. No
1: disrespect to uh, T's stance and the comments that she's made, because I do understand most of them, even though I haven't fully digested it. You only just shared this with me, with me earlier today, but I also have to think about, uh, you know, she dreamt. She obviously dreamt about this, right? And I love that for her. Yeah. So this was a personal goal for her then more power to her.
0: This is one of the things that I was talking about with uh, Jamie Ali Law um, in the third movement a few weeks ago. You know, when we talk about opera, spaces like La Scala and The Met that have historically kept us out Mm. are spaces that if it was up to me, we would just get out of here one way or another. And Black people and people of color who want to sing and star in those spaces have the right to want that. So I, I always, you know, it's a very nuanced conversation as far as dismantling systems and rooting for everybody Black who's rooting for everybody Black. So, you know, I send my prayers. This is this is what I will say, you know, officially. I send my prayers to Justice Ketanji Brown Jackson, you know, for her to prove those of us who have no reason to trust the state wrong. Prove us wrong. Soften the hearts. Of these conservative justice so that we can actually have liberty and justice for all, as it is supposed to be, as it says, you know. So that that that's that that's my thing there. I think those concepts definitely cross over. Into the arts because there are so many people who Mm. you know for similar reasons have no reason to trust these institutions and no reason to trust that no matter what black person you put as general director or vice president of x y and z or whatever how at the end of the day you aren't going to affirm communities of color and marginalized communities in the way you were, you know, in the way you should. Those people exist and I understand and, you know, are with them most of the time. At the same time, I feel like if we can have the courage to break down some of these conversations and understand why some of these narratives exist, we might be able to get a couple steps closer to actually renewing the system so that we can all trust each other once again and actually engage the art without all of the drama and all the politics of it all let's get into it blankenship and this It's Triloquy, Opus 146. Thank you for tuning in to Returning Listeners. Thank you for continuing to support this show and helping this boat stay afloat for almost three whole seasons. We're getting there toward the end of Season 3. Thank you so much for your continued support. To new listeners, if this is your first time checking out Triloquy, Triloquy is a podcast that takes the phrase classical music and applies it to something much more broad than Beethoven and Mozart and all of those people. The phrase classical music can not only be applied to more so-called genres of music it can be approximated to different conversations that legitimize to use that word again that legitimize the genre for as, as something that can apply and engage and genuinely impact more people and more communities for more information on the triloquy podcast visit triloquy.org you can donate there you can listen to past opuses and you can reach out so be sure to visit in addition to your support support for triloquy comes from springboard for the arts a local arts institution to St. Paul, Minnesota, affirming the need for artists to make a living and a life. More on them at springboardforthearts.org. I want to thank Nick Cooper and all of the free radicals down in Texas. Uh, A while ago, several months back, Scott, we featured uh, Nick Cooper and guests to talk about uh, the album White Power Outage. Well, there were so so many sparks around (laughs) that project that uh, White Power Outage 2 has been released. I'm playing... A bassoon and flute on the album. I uh, did some uh, arranging. I, I, I took some solos and transcribed did you for spit for the string rhymes. players. You were I, I didn't rhymes. say any words into the microphone. But, oh, man. <laughs> but I was really honored to be a part of uh, the whole thing. So that's how you can find that on Bandcamp. I want to uh, thank the Peabody Conservatory for having me for the next normal. Um, they basically asked me, Scott, to record a video talking about all the different aspects of my work and what I do here in this studio every day that, that that allows me to somehow keep the lights on and and keep some food so appreciate everyone over at the Peabody Conservatory. Scott, I taped video and audio separately, so I feel like I'm doing something now. Right. I mean there were some there were some sync issues the, the first time through, but, <laughs> but second time's a charm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then uh finally before we get into it, I just want to thank all of uh the SGI members, all of the Nietzsche and Buddhists uh here uh in the Midwest who helped me celebrate my receiving the Gohans in this past weekend, it was just so great to uh, get flowers and gifts and just to feel the love. You know, Mm. we as as separated as we have been even physically for these past couple years because of COVID, it's it's really great to uh, feel the physical support of folks. It it was really a magical day for me. Dr. Eugene Rogers joins us for uh, Movement 3. Looking forward to sharing that conversation with y'all. But for now, we will get into Movement 1. A while ago, you brought in an accidental where a church was instituting their own reparations uh, by paying black artists. Remind me what that was about, if you can remember.
1: Right. Whatever whatever piece they performed that was uh, by a black composer, then they would make donations or contributions somehow from their collections to that artist, I guess. Okay. um,
0: Well, I'm going to. I brought in something similar to get us started for this first movement this week. I'm going to give a sharp to the First United Church of Oak Park. This is in the Chicago area. I'm reading from globalnews.ca. It says Illinois churches. <laughs> i'm sorry it's just hard for me to even read this without chuckling illinois churches fast from whiteness for lent sparks vitriolic debate they're fasting from whiteness scott let me read a church in illinois has sparked a major debate and plenty of vitriol after it declared it would quote fast from whiteness during lent first united church of oak park an open community church outside chicago announced that it would not use any music or materials written or composed by white people in the 40-day religious observance period that leads up to Easter. You know, the good news is, Scott, the folks in that Bible of theirs aren't white, so they don't have to worry about getting rid of that despite, you you know, despite common belief. But what are are your knee-jerk reactions to this? I can't even imagine what it would be like if a black church said something like, oh, well, we're fasting from whiteness for 40 days. So,
1: I'm glad it was them. What do you think? So they're just not performing music by white composers. That's is that what it. Is that's that... what
0: it. That's what it sounds like. Let me read a little bit more of this uh, on the church's website. It says, "In our worship services throughout Lent, we will not be using any music or liturgy written or composed by white people. Our music will be drawn from the African American spirituals tradition, from South African freedom songs, from Native American traditions, and many, many." more. So yeah, that's, that's what they said. They're, mm-hmm. they're not, they're, they're, they're not doing that.
1: My take on it. You're going to be fine. At the end of this, you're going to be fine. It's not like there's a shortage no. of music by us colored people. And,
0: oh, <laughs> go on. <laughs> I didn't, again. didn't mean to derail you. <laughs>
1: Boy. So no, my point is you're, you're fasting from, from white music. It's not whiteness because Oak, is this Oak Park? That's what it said. Okay. So this is the United Methodist Church of X suburb. Sure. Right. Sure. So we know where we are. Mm-hmm. We know what the drive there is like, to so drive home. And so the what I hear you has,
0: saying is that this is performative. Is that what you're saying?
1: All I'm saying is they're going to be fine.
0: I wonder what the hope for impact is. So again, going back to what we talked about several weeks ago, the church, the white church that was paying reparations to what they call reparations to black artists whose music they would use, you know, so that's something that's directly positively impacting those black composers and and music creators. Mm -hmm. What... Yarn, can you pull on as far as a hoped for impact here, awareness, or giving folks something to the, to think about? Again, what, what, I'm, what could I, it be?
1: Again, I'm thinking about perspectives because there are probably people in that congregation who this is going to be a big lift. You know that that this is this is and and maybe it is performative in the fact that. The people who go there can, you know, when they see their friends at the grocery store, they can say, Yeah, we're not we're not listening to any white music. This, so we're really we're really doing the work. You know, we're really trying to get get ourselves right. <laughs> oh, it's, Tell me that it's conversation won't happen. Oh, of course. At the, hams, oh. at the ham sample station. Oh,
0: that's what yeah, all throughout Kmart. And over oh, they don't have Kmart in Chicago anymore, but you know, whatever. <laughs> Yeah, you're right. You're right. That's something.
1: But I really, I, I mean, I, I also think that there has been enough about critical race theory and 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 anti-trans legislation that's going yep. on now that the news cycle is as such as this little blip is going to be. People are going to be squalling about this in a much bigger fashion, just because the news cycle has. Slammed everybody's head with how bad it would be,
0: and then of course you have the idea that there are certain types of folks who see this and and will donate or will go to the church. Oh, yeah, you're doing the right thing in X, Y, and Z. So maybe you know maybe it could be maybe. seen as an advertisement for the church. I don't know. I hope we don't start seeing church commercials. No. Oh,
1: <laughs> so all I'm saying is is that on some level this yep. will work. Mm, okay.
0: Okay. But there's
1: a whole bunch of them where it doesn't.
0: I want to go I, right. I want to go just a little deeper before we well let, well but before I say what I was going to say, of course, there's backlash. So in in this <laughs> no, so in in uh, in this article here, I'll link it. They uh, list a few of the tweets from folks who are are upset. One of the tweets, and and you know, this is the thing: somebody can you know get on my back and say, "Oh, why are you saying these people's names?" That they they say things publicly, and and I think. They, they believe that it's just going out into the ether. But if somebody really wanted to, I'm, I'm not, not going to add to this person. Y'all can see it in the article. But uh, the Internet is fast, and they could find this yeah. person anyway, just making that little side point. But um, one of the bit of backlash here says, Sounds like First United has publicly declared its hatred for white people. Go ahead. But if the shoe was on the other foot, what would you think? Is this really the message you want to send? Historic churches woke new spin for Lent fasting from whiteness and race-based liturgy. Yeah, the 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 folks are mad, and it's it's that claiming again of a whole. And I'm nobody's Christian, but claiming that whole religion as something white. You know, not just speaking to the culture and even the music, but even some of the image, the prototypical uh Mr. Caviezel. You know, Jesus Caviezel Christ that we think of when we when we think of that that figure. You know, that that whiteness that has been attached to it plays a huge role in this and this is why things like uh equity are important because when we go back and consider the conditioning of thinking of you know a middle eastern religion as translated into america as something white and focusing mm. on something else during lent as something violent or anti-white it, it all wraps up into
1: so the how m- messy this all is the music is not going to be white and this and they're announcing hatred for white people. What was the sermon? Probably, probably not hatred to white people, but you know how
0: people get into their feelings I'm about certain car- things. See, I mean, what, they, yeah. and they act like and, you know the, these hymns that are being sidelined for forty days. For goodness sake, it's not like Jesus Christ nights. wrote the music, right? Forty, come on, Scott. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Thank you. Um, It's not like Jesus Christ wrote the hymns themselves or something, you know, it's so uh, there's, there's just the conflation of many things culturally over generations, I think is being challenged by this congregation. And, you know, quite honestly, I'm here for the mess. So I say good for
1: them. I, all I
0: (laughs) go ahead. No, what were you going to say?
1: I was going to say, you know, just nothing surprises anymore. I am, I am Simone Garnett in the good place. And I'm just being fed chemicals. I'm dead. And this is this is all stuff that's just being fed to me. Let me... I, I, I don't know. I Like I said, in some respects, it, this isn't surprising at all. And in others, I'm sitting here shocked that like what for 40 days. Okay, so for a little bit more than a month, you're, you're not going to listen to white music in church. You You can do whatever you want when you're not there. I don't know. Maybe, maybe I I don't feel the spirit in the same way that they do. <laughs> <You> know,
0: <yeah. laughs> um, what do you, th- uh, before we leave this, I want to go a little deeper. So of course we can, you know, we can talk about hope for impact and what was on their minds, but I feel like there's a way to go around this where we actually have the perpetuation of certain power structures, if we're talking about a predominantly white congregation, putting black music in a position of servitude, this is, this is how we invite black people into, or black culture, the black thought, black creativity into our space, us to use it. And to use it for this purpose of making a point to make certain people mad on the internet or for us to feel good about ourselves because we're doing something radical during Lent. I feel like there is a way to look at this to where those, those power structures, those historical power structures are being perpetuated in a weird way. What do mm-hmm. you think about that?
1: First off, let me be clear. Shout out to the church for doing it. Yeah. Okay. That, I, I don't want to diminish that at all. Yeah. And... I do not feel bad for anybody sitting in those pews <laughs> who are who are salty about this. I mean just
0: sit, yeah because well, we'll show up to service mad and just sit and, there with a scrunched up well I don't know maybe all the congregants are happy. And I could
1: it. be making oh, tons of assumptions. You see but from my perspective I've been there's only been one church I've gone to with regularity and it was Unitarian. Mm-hmm. Every week there was something non-Christian. There was something that was a focus from a religion from somewhere else. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, I don't care. And the music was the bomb. And it came from everywhere. And the so, and the church
0: even you know made their uh, statement clear on Twitter this uh, last week. Uh, First United Ch- Church of Oak Park uh, actually Facebook account uh, posted our Linton theme has spurred considerable, <laughs> considerable discussion, discussion. <laughs> with some people questioning the message. In practice, with the Linton uh, discipline of fasting, our intent was to lay aside our usual frames of reference and open ourselves to hearing the gospel message to the voices of Black people, Indigenous people, and people of color. Sounds great. Our worship service in Lent have been diverse and beautiful. We pray that God oils the hinges of our hearts doors, that they might swing open gently to receive the good news of Christ's resurrection, which we all await at the culmination of Lent. I feel like that's basically the preacher uh, going up on the podium and saying, look, we're supposed to love everybody and do what the Bible says. Is
1: that wrong? Mm. (laughs)
0: Mm. Anyway, um, literal thoughts and prayers <laughs> to all parties involved because uh, you know, you don't have that much left, but let me, you know, and and one more quick thing. Listen, I've said it before. If the orchestra is Scott and it would be more of a challenge, but I would go as far as say, even the radio stations, let's not say all music by white folks is just washed aside for Lent. But if for like I say, like I like to say, for five seasons, for five orchestral seasons, if orchestra said, we're going to put Brahms and Beethoven and Mozart, you know, pick the top five most performed composers in those spaces, mm-hmm. we're going to put them on the shelf for five seasons. There wouldn't be a shortage of music. No. At all, which I think makes the point that we have over program certain things. Just like this church is saying it's 40 days and they're not going to have a silent service, you know, within, within these 40 days, it's not like there's gonna, not going to be music, you know, even in, in radio. If they hadn't announced it, would anybody notice? And see, and that's a, you know, you're, you're giving us Oracle, you know, you wouldn't have broken it if I hadn't said anything or whatever mm. she got, you know, and I know in radio my noodle that, uh, especially 24 hour classical radio, even doing something like this for Lent, wouldn't be impossible. It would be more work than a lot of people want to do. But let's say for right. one day, for something like mm-hmm. Juneteenth, mm-hmm. do you think it is viable, You know, people's opinions aside, do you think it would be viable for 24 hours to exclusively feature composers and musicians of color? And I'm not talking about Sheku Kani Mason playing Haydn. Mm-hmm. I'm talking about Black music. Black composers and Black performers for 24 hours. Is that possible? Sure. So when does it become impossible? Two days, seven days, 40 days for Lent? Uh,
1: good question, because I know that in the month of February, we have the Black History Month stream at mm-hmm. work. Yeah. So uh, I don't know how long that goes before it repeats. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, there's whole the whole Black History, Black music, Appreciation Month, right? That's correct. June, June, I think, right? Yeah, with Juneteenth, and we did it there mm-hmm. on Juneteenth. Yeah. So, uh, so it's yeah, it's possible. So depending on depending on your library.
0: So again, shout out to 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 this church. Uh I think radical things like this, while maybe on a level shock jock, you know, at, right now, I think broader scheme. It it helps inspire right. people's imagination. At See, least have conversations
1: that'll get us somewhere. There are, there are folks there who are losing their minds mm-hmm. right now over this. And then there's people like you, like T, who are going, "Yes," and
0: <laughs> "What else are you doing?" And I mean, I'm sure some of them are members, but you know, I grew up in the church and like the uh, preacher used to say all the time, "Don't act like the devil don't have a seat in here too." Mm. Anyway, did
1: you do it? <laughs> did you observe
0: Lent? Uh The last time I can remember observing Lent and 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 not for religious purposes, but as something to do as a practice, a personal practice, you know, like, oh, people will be like, well, I'm going to just stop, not drink for 40 days just to purify myself. It's not in conjunction with church or anything. Anyway, Mm -hmm. I just wanted to make that clear. So when I was in grad school, I was like, well, I wonder what it would be like for me to give up my car radio for 40 days. And when you live in Los Angeles, you spend a lot of time in the car. So you know that was a big sacrifice, and it actually uh, made me appreciate listening to music in the car a little bit more when I came back to it. I have a friend, guess, yeah, uh, who lives out in California. She's not religious at all, but she would do a Lent thing every now and again. I remember one year she she said she gave up her bed for forty days, and wow, you know, that
1: wow, good one. You know,
0: so that gave her an, a deeper appreciation. So look, wow. maybe so maybe these uh, church people will come back and have a deeper appreciation of whatever four-part unseasoned Maybe. hymn. would be great. They'll sing it. All right, we're going to uh, transition out of this. I think I gave that church a sharp. I'll give them another one. We're going to transition out of this uh, with, I, I was trying to think of what is a, one of the classics that if they had the right repertoire, the right repertoire, the right personnel, that this church could really get off and expose uh, uh, some of these uh, folks who may not be as familiar with the Black church tradition with one of the classics. And the one I uh, decided to pull up was Marvin. And Saps never would have made it. Let's listen to a little bit of this to get us to our next accidental. I think I sent it to you. I'm, I'm going to tell you really how I started to think about this tune uh, a couple of days ago. I think I sent it to you on social media. There was some live performance of Frozen. And yeah. the video is this little girl. I mean, not she's bawling, but not because of she's scared or upset. It's just the, the emotions elation. are a lot. Yeah. And listen, Grandma in the back, if you look closely at the video, Grandma in the back was wiping tears, too. And... <laughs> And I was just thinking about, you know, the the times when, you know, music can just get you all the way like that. And somebody in the comments said that uh, Let It Go is the child version of Never Would Have Made It. You know, mm. when, when, when those little kids, you know, I, I can just hear them now. Listen, the cold never bothered me anyway. Mm. You know, just <laughs> 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 on my way to the Buddhist Center, uh, boarded, I, after looking at that uh, meme, I listened to Let It Go. You know, full speakers, and you know I'm feeling it, and then I went right into never would have made it, and uh, you know I mm. was I was in a way. It's just that um, Let It Go was one of those songs. That was played so much, I wouldn't even give it the time of day because I knew I would hear sure. it in five minutes. Yeah. You know, the shout out to the Knoxville Symphony. We pulled it out all the damn time. You know, of course the winter concerts was Scott, my last uh Fourth of July pops. Oh, <laughs> Let it go came out. We're in the middle of July. Christmas and, the, in and July. The, and the kids were living out there. They didn't stand for the pledge, but they stood for Let It Go. And of course. <laughs> <laughs> huh. Anyway, never would have made it. Uh, if if somehow you don't know that track, go look go look that up. That's one of the classics. When we talk about the foundational pieces of music within communities, when it comes to gospel, especially contemporary gospel in the black church, that's one of them. So go check it out. I love that tune. God's trying to tell you something. Mm-hmm. Amen. Amen. Ashe. All right. What are you trying to tell us, Scott? I'm sharp.
1: <laughs> I've got a sharp to offer up from a New York times article with the headline outspoken composer to lead international contemporary ensemble. Mm. Um, I've, played some of their recordings. What do you know of the International Contemporary Ensemble?
0: I don't know a whole bunch about them, I, and I'm sorry that I'm not remembering, but there was at one point a, a International Contemporary Ensemble aligned or adjacent guest on uh, Triloquy. Please forgive me for not remembering, but they're this uh, organization. I know they're rooted in uh, New York, but on the Wikipedia it says they're based in New York and Chicago, and they're just one of those uh, many organizations that affirms and supports quote-unquote new music, Mm so-called new music. And I'm not in those communities. I think we need to find a a clearer uh, way of describing what we mean. But when I say new music, I'm talking about composers who are literally out here today Mm -hmm. and utilizing today's sounds, today's instruments, and not just orchestral instruments, but electronics and prepared piano and all these sorts of things. So, you know, just really, really, really contemporary classical music
1: it was announced last friday that they have a new artistic director george e lewis mm. who's a professor of music at columbia university he is a, a trombonist also has collaborated with the group quite a bit the first black leader in the group's 21 year history yeah now, i was a little bit surprised to find out that uh, a lot of composers of color feel excluded from the new music Oh, yeah. Genre. Oh, yeah. And that was a little bit surprising to me. I'll tell you why. You told me once that you fell in love with composers like Shostakovich and such from the band music. Right. right. And that a lot of the contemporary, the living composers working now are writing for band. And that's where you're hearing a lot of the new music, correct?
0: Right, right.
1: So I was a little bit surprised to find that, you know, Black composers felt excluded from this. And so it just shows another layer within the mm-hmm. layer and I'm, a, I'm and and let me give you even another layer
0: something that i'm told all the time and and some of them uh have been guests here shout out to joy uh maybe joy is who mm-hmm. i'm thinking about when i'm i'm thinking about ice here but um something that uh that they would tell me all the time is that in new music spaces when we start to talk about DEI because of the marginalization of new music in the in the broader scheme of you know so-called classical music and the and in the industry the white people in those spaces feel some level of understanding ownership? Oh, okay. and ownership that is really fabricated when you try to create huh. uh, marginalization as an artist based on the art you create and marginalization based on who you are as a human being so people you know if i can just say it uh speak plainly the complaint that i hear a lot is that folks in those spaces act more woke may, way more woke than they are which in turn mm. makes the environment even more toxic than dealing with people who know that they're problematic if mm. the, if all that makes sense you know it does
1: yeah so the hope is i'm guessing is but that, anyway uh, but george e lewis being here should right, you know that um uh, and and you said that he's kind of a um, a disruptor uh, on his own. I mean, that's what it says here. The The headline is outspoken composer. <laughs> but <laughs> um, the, I wanted to also point out that the vernacular is changing, even though they put it in quotes for the story. Decolonize was used in context with classical music here. Yeah. It says Lewis is an influential voice in the effort to decolonize classical music at a time when the field is reckoning with questions about racial injustice and legacy of exclusion, so there, there I guess those
0: people who will get upset specifically at that word, you know, even de- decolonizing the arts, decolonizing sure. classical music, you know, i I didn't get it from nowhere. i'm 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 not saying I made the thing up, but, I like that more people are getting there, you know, through through our different pathways to the arts, however we engage it, however we try to make change, I think it's becoming clearer and clearer that decolonization is the correct way to approach renewal of classical music in the United States, because that's really what we're dealing with, a colonial way of thinking about this art form with the, you know, with classical music in the u s being a colony of mm. a west the Western European
1: aesthetic he points he makes a, a really important point here though that the composers and improvisers are not the ones producing the sounds of colonialism. This was from a recent essay where he wrote, wrote rather it's the music curators and the institutions who have been composing and improvising colonialism and
0: that's tea yeah because It's easy to reduce the conversation to, well, are you saying that we should never play Haydn again? Well, yes, (laughs) but (laughs) if you ask me, that's what I say, But but that's not where the conversation should be centered. We're talking about renewing the institutions, and I think that point is is very important to understand that the, that, you know, Beethoven is not maintaining the status quo. It's, it's the people who continue to center him more than, than other things. I, I think that's very important to know. And, you know, what I have, you know, very, uh, I, I hate to come to this realization, but the more groups that I work with, the more institutions uh, I engage in my outside work, the the more I see it not only, you know, do we need to talk about it's the institutions holding up these status quos, but really the musicians within these institutions. It's easy, I think, at least from my perspective, to think about the musicians as the folks who are just playing the music. They're there at the whims of the board and the artistic planning committees and and X, Y, and Z. But from what I can Speak to. And again, like I'm saying, I haven't worked with all orchestras, but from what I can speak to, it really is the musicians going to work saying, actually, I only want to play, you know, insert European composers. That's what I'm trained on. That's what I love. That's what I went to music school for. That's why I, you know, apply for this job or audition for this job. That's what I'm here for. And I think that is going to come more and more to the front as we move forward, especially as uh, COVID you know, and we talk about a new variant, but especially as concert halls are opening back up and, and filling back up more and more, especially going into um, uh, the next season, we got to face the facts, we got to face the music that these musicians are in need of renewal and change as well of of mental decolonization, you know, so I, I just wanted to tack that on to the point that we shouldn't be focusing on the composers in these conversations, the institutions. But I think we need to reframe who we see as the gatekeepers Mm -hmm. in these
1: institutions. A lot of great points like that made by uh, George E. Lewis in the article. It'll be posted in the description. So check it out yourself. But uh, I wanted to focus in on some music that George Lewis wrote because it's, uh, it's a, quote, interactive trio for trombone, two pianos, and interactive music system. So for the uninitiated, like myself, mm-hmm. can you lay out what that might even be like? What what might someone expect if that was on a program?
0: I'll uh, I'll approach these two ways. The first way, I want to um, shout out the honorable Elizabeth A. Baker. In our conversation, she was talking about how we need to release ourselves from the expectation of having something explained to us beforehand and a big part of new music, especially experimental music is to allow audiences to, experience and not be taught or put into a box, you know, or that's hold or what? told, right. That's So that's, no program notes? So, so that's part A that, that that's, you know, that, but the other way, you know, to, to answer your question more directly, if I were to see this in a program book and I'm, I'm walking in blind, basically what I would expect is something that sounds very different something that doesn't sound tonal in the way that I'm thinking about piano and and trombone something that is just going to uh force me to stretch my ears and and stretch my mind to to something different mm. how about we listen to a little bit of it right now George Lewis's interactive trio for trombone, two pianos, and interactive music system. You know, this is the thing. There's so many layers to this conversation because the first thing I'm thinking about is when experimental music uh, was really beginning uh, to be dug into in the uh in the 20th century in the middle part of the 20th century maybe even a little bit before digging into sounds that are way left field is something that i'm sure was allowed to more of the white uh, artists like john cage and those people and not other folks you know as evidenced in the way that uh, we're familiar with certain names you know julius eastman is a name that folks have been saying regularly only for the past decade if 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 if, sure. if even even that long sure. so there's certain allowances for exploring certain sounds that are rooted in class and and identity you know huge conversations there but the one that I think is more pressing Scott is that when we try to affirm more music as classical and suitable for uh classical spaces what we, what we consider classical spaces we're not typically uh, making the argument for music that sounds crunchy, quote unquote, but that sounds different than just the orchestral, you know, paradigms of music. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now, with all that being said, this music by George Lewis is that so-called crunchy music. What kind of framework... Would you or could you uh, offer to an audience before presenting something like that? I've gotten into <sighs> the experimental music into so, in some of my radio stuff, and for me, I think it's important to just affirm <laughs> the audience in advance, to say something to them like, look, for people who aren't uh, entrenched in new music spaces, this may sound a little different to you. And I, and I would I would be intentional about saying not saying things like weird or strange. I'll say, you know, this may sound a little different than you're used to, but think about something. And, you know, of course, this is an example of a piece of music that I will be as familiar with as I can be so that I can paint as much of a picture for the audience. Anyway, that, that that's basically how I would approach it. Do you have any ideas as far as contextualizing this for people?
1: One of the things that I have learned is that anytime you're going to present something like this, or you know you've got a format change that you're dealing with or something like that. Right. Um, don't try to hide it and go. Oh gosh, I hope you like what I hope you like what this is. Like you no, say, if you're going to be a bear, be a grizzly. Be a grizzly. Promote the hell out of it. Get out there in front and talk about all of the things that you're excited about. Mm-hmm. How this is going to sound different. Yeah. This yeah. is not what you're used to at all. And you that's, see that's, the, that's good. And you I like see, that. And you see the way my face even changed, how when I'm talking about it. So you what you want to do is is prop it up so that it has the better chance to succeed. Yeah. Instead good. talk about how great it is rather than, ooh, I hope you like this.
0: Yeah. I like that because I because I think what the uh, what a curator, again, George Lewis was George E. Lewis was talking about is the curator's fault. <laughs> the way that a curator thinks about a piece of music i think can can be mm. determined or at least <laughs> be faked mm. or fabricated not that you should be faking it when it comes to what you present but i think you're absolutely right if if you it's like when a little kid bumps their head if you freak out and say oh my god oh my you're god okay? you should, are you okay that's when they start then screaming they start, <laughs> and i don't have a child and i know that much <laughs> so um But if it's if and not to call audiences children, even though they know they can be acting like children sometimes when it comes to this new music. But I think you're exactly right. If you're like you know, I'm I'm really excited to share this with y'all. The next one, you know, plenty of folks will not like it. But that's true for the Haydn and the Beethoven as well, because I'm turning the channel on that. Mm-hmm. That's the point I make. So, you know, for all of the people who think, "Well, I don't see how I could possibly put that on," I can just hear the uh, the radio station uh, dials changing from all over. That's true. That's happening anyway. So give some so so give some room to to these new sounds. Uh, if it if, if for anything affirming the people, the many people of color and all people behind this valid form of music. You know, if not only for that, but be just to help expand, to decolonize, as I say, and even as the writer that uh, uh, piece said there, uh, mm. when it when it comes to these classical spaces, I love uh, digging into uh, new music. That's really my bag. I use the word weird not as a pejorative, but as as something good. I love all the weird stuff, and I hope. Y'all do too.
1: And congratulations to Professor George E. Lewis on becoming Artistic Director of International Contemporary Ensemble.
0: Yes, absolutely. And we're here in the second movement where Scott and I are going to highlight some music that we've been spending some time with in our own time. I'll I'll get us started since we're on this kick of of new music and loosening parameters. So in the same way that I was just speaking to uh, program notes, I feel like in our use of the phrase classical music, When we center that Western European aesthetic and definition of that phrase, there's there's so much more than just aesthetics that are being centered and codified as classical. I'm thinking about form and structure and being able to hear, especially when you're talking about those classical era pieces of music, being Mm -hmm. able to hear where a piece of music is going. uh, Oh, we're back at the recapitulation. We're getting toward the end, you know, so having that structure, that's not the case of course, with all classical Mm -hmm. music. So Mm -hmm. um, as I've been, uh, intensifying my study of the ancient sutras and you know sitting up here late reading all that stuff i don't like reading in silence but i'm one of those readers scott uh that I can't read with the TV on, can't have words. Yeah. Yeah. Even, even if someone is talking or if Dell is on the phone or something that would be distracting to me. So I've been trying to uh, find music uh, that I can, you know, use to just help me focus. And with, you know, ancient Indian written sutras, I decided to dig into some Indian music and I found this album that's titled simply enough, classical music of north india so i just mm. let it go and let it play and i was expecting uh different movements or or different segmented things but the track i ended up on uh, called raga sahu kanara is just an hours worth of music uh we often talk about Nirm- Nirmala raja shekhar and the you know raga she played for us on triloquy i think that lasted i don't know what 10 minutes 15 minutes or something, what what they played, but it just was kind of going. And you can tell they were exploring and interweaving. Well, this is what uh, this music does for about an hour obviously i won't uh, play the whole thing but i think it's just a another really great example of how if we lift the parameters and all of the gates and walls uh around that phrase classical music we can open up ourselves to explore much more and just getting into a vibe not necessarily a story or a feeling even but just a general vibe so here's a little bit of this uh, ragasahu kanara that i've been listening to this week i've really been enjoying it talk about creating context for people we don't obviously we don't have lyrics or anything to connect our ears to and we certainly don't even have the western uh harmonic structures that tell us when the end of a phrase is coming or when the beginning of a phrase is here or anything like that we're just kind of listening to this freely Mm -hmm. uh where does your ear Go. What what do you what do you find yourself attaching your ear to when you listen to music like that? Are you following the drums? Are you paying attention to the sitar as it is in, in this recording? Is there something that you find yourself latching on to?
1: When that kind of music is done well and I'm really immersed in it, I feel like I'm paying an awful lot of attention to the the beat. Mm-hmm. Because I think it's difficult to maintain that. Oh, sure. Yeah. And you're obviously you're listening to the sitar as well, but it becomes more of like a uh something in the in the tapestry behind the beat because it's a hypnotic thing. Mm-hmm. And you like you said, there's no recapitulation to let you know when they're coming to the end At or At least such. not that we can right, hear. Right. You know? <laughs> they probably know exactly right. what's going I'm on. I'm sure they do. And so when they rap, it's almost like waking up from a nap. You know, almost yeah. like going, Whoa. And that's for me
0: what's um, among the most beautiful things about the experience of digging into classical music like this is that you spend all this time on this journey. And like you said, when the music lifts, it's like this, oh wow, look at what I just got to experience. Let's let's, let's check out the, the, the end of, of this raga to see if we can feel a little bit of that. So, yeah, you see, it's, it's almost like this, this, the incense smoke is <laughs> is clearing from the room. And you're like, oh, wow, that was incredible. Again, that's uh Ragasahu Kanara. Uh, on sitar was Free Mani Lal Nag. Playing the tabla was Pandit Mahaprus Misra. Uh The tambula player was Sachiko Toril. And that was uh, recorded back in September of 1985. Think mm. back to 1985. That music was more far away from the United States than now. Obviously geography hasn't changed, but you know, of course what I mean to say is that it seems like the world pre-internet must have seemed like such a a bigger place. I sure. wish I wish I could experience what it was like hearing something like that for the first time back in those days when you couldn't just go to YouTube. That had to have been a, a record. You know, that, is, that was prized by music fans, if they could get their hand on it over here.
1: Or if you were lucky enough to catch it on the radio station. Or something like that. During yeah. the
0: World Music Hour. Right. And, and we all know, you know, we we repeat, that's like saying the ethnic food aisle in the grocery store, and I go down the ethnic food aisle, <laughs> but that doesn't
1: mean it's not a problem. <laughs> I'm going to start a gallery every time I see that and send it to you.
0: And then, of course, you know, just b- before I leave it, it just reiterates the point that the phrase classical music does not mean beethoven that's just what we have been taught for it to mean i i I didn't make up the name of that album the name of the album is literally classical music of north india for sitar and tabla so there is no it's certainly not at that time and not even now there's no conversation about should we be calling this classical or no no because it is so if they can affirm that for themselves as a people and as a culture we can do the same as it applies to our music and our musical sensibilities and our music history so that's what i've been reading my sutras to a bit of north indian music you know that's the other thing i learned before i passed off that's one of the other big things i learned from nirmala that i have that i've always taken from me we think of india as one place but south indian classical is very different than north indian classical i'm sure languages are different and food is different so of course the the music is different so yeah the sitar is very much a north indian uh instrument as i've learned so great to dig into the north indian classical music this week as i dig into the lotus sutra and all of those ancient things that i can't quite understand all the time just like the music
1: (laughs) what you got this week well I am going to dig into some classical music from America, i.e. jazz, our own indigenous music. Uh, because it is International Guitar Month. Oh, is it? It is. Oh, A- sure. April. April was, okay. April is International Guitar Month. So Have you been celebrating? Have you been practicing
0: know, more? Yeah. So okay. you know
1: that you know the direction that I'm going to be going and I'm going to take you five mile five miles. Five years hence of 1985, where Garrett was. We're going to go up to 1990. I would have been working overnight jazz on the weekend at KVNO. And one of the guys that uh, I really fell in love with during those overnight hours, I fell in love with the music of Stanley Jordan, who is a guitarist who has a very unique... I don't know of anybody anybody else who plays the way that Stanley Jordan does. Black man. Stanley Jordan is a black man who... Uh, plays one regular uh, frequently will play one regular guitar strapped around him, and then have a MIDI guitar on a stand, and he'll have that in front of him. So on his left hand, he's using a technique called hammer ons, where the the finger will uh, strike a string and make the note by hammering on to it. Yeah. So he's forming chords with the left hand on one guitar, and then on the MIDI guitar, he'll solo with the right. So he's really. Sp- <laughs> I don't know how somebody splits their mind their mind like that, yeah. but piano players do it, right? Sure. So I found out that's what he has done. He has changed the the tuning of the guitar to be more keyboard like
0: oh.
1: And so that's how he's getting these hammer on techniques, these sounds um, he has covered everything from uh, stairway to heaven to Eleanor Rigby. Uh, incredible renditions of uh, Cantaloupe Island by uh, Herbie Hancock. And he's also done a guitar version. Who's of... also a
0: Buddhist, by the way. Oh, is he? Yeah. Cool.
1: And he's uh, also done a transcription for solo guitar of Mozart's, one of Mozart's piano concertos. He said, yes, I can play so this can, too. Yes, so he can do <laughs> all of that. But I wanted to give you a taste of one of the tracks that I first caught on to with him. And the you can hear the MIDI instrument very acutely here. You know, our technology has advanced since 1990, but this I thought would really illustrate how he's uh, keeping chords going with his left hand and soloing on a different guitar with the right. <laughs>
0: You know our musical picks are often complementary in such interesting ways. So okay, so I was around here talking about the tabla and the sitar and all these instruments. How they're you know, and and this is very similar mm. in, in in a different way. You know, it's not a tabla; it's a trap set. And it's not the sitar, but it's this double guitar setup, and you have the bass player going for it in the same way that I was talking about—you know, freeing one's minds from uh, the parameters that say, "Okay, well, we're getting to the end." Or, you know, for most listeners, certainly myself—you know, I'm I'm a Western classically trained. Uh, my my training wasn't rooted in the jazz, so sometimes I find myself listening to this music in that more free way, hmm. and just getting. Uh, getting what I can and and attaching to you know what I can when it comes to and and you said you know of course you fell in love with Stanley Jordan's uh, music and playing in radio how would you contextualize that for the for the jazz audiences you know this idea of just listening freely and and letting it happen and just going on the journey that would be very is that a break (laughs) am I reciting one of your breaks no that would be
1: very (laughs) easy in jazz yeah because everybody likes to be more free in jazz, mm, and that's why they're there. There was yeah. a, right, exactly. There was a, a one of my colleagues, this uh, woman who played drums in the uh, Thornberg trio. Um, she said that you know everybody who goes over to jazz, they fall in love with the free form and they never go back to rock. They never go back to whatever genre they came to jazz from. They mm-hmm. always just stay there. Yeah, wow. At least that's that's the way it seems. But um, I actually did get to see Stanley Jordan play live once, and. Uh, th- that's that's just a, a classic example of what you get at one of his shows. Well wow. you, yeah, you just heard what he does every night.
0: Let, let let's get a little bit of this ending. See if we have that. It, it wouldn't be incense smoke lifting from the room. It'd be another type. But let's see if we can get let's <laughs> see if we can get, get some of that. Any of that in here as as we wrap up. <laughs> So all. I, don't, I don't know if it's like smoke lifting from the room as much as I envision something like, okay, we're getting to the end, or somebody started a fight, everybody pack up and leave, or, you know. Right.
1: <laughs> that was uh, the Live in Montreal Jazz Festival 1990 with Stanley Jordan guitars, bass played by, uh, help me out here, Garrett, Shame Moffat. Okay, yeah. Uh, the drummer is uh, Tommy Campbell. Yeah,
0: shout out to everybody. Virtuoso, classic. So Folks, there in the genre. Thanks for bringing that in. All right. Well, we're getting into the third movement. This week's guest is Doctor Eugene Rogers. Uh, this is someone who I've have been looking forward to speaking with for a long time. When I saw uh, the Seven Last Words of the Unarmed live and decided to leave the stage and do something else in my life, uh, Doctor Rogers, Doctor Eugene Rogers, was on the podium for that. You know, he's long been involved with uh, justice and activism as it applies to uh, this genre. You know, Scott, uh, his uh, Uh, work with Exigence. You've seen that uh, Mm -hmm. ensemble live. And uh, he has a a program coming up uh, next month, uh, actually uh, middle of June with the Kennedy Center, uh, a concert titled Justice and Peace that um, among many things will include the Justice Symphony. So I talked with uh, Dr. Eugene Rogers um, about that upcoming collaboration His work with exigence and just music in general. It's a really uh, great conversation. Basically, where we start, we talk about a love for music as something cultural you know for a a lot of people have stories about how they fell in love with music the first time they went to x concert or they were in high school and this happened well a love for music for many people you know certainly myself comes from just being entrenched in it whether it's the black church or having a parent that goes to the blues hall every weekend or whatever so Mm -hmm. that's where we start our conversation that love for music and that drive for music as a cultural thing specifically linked to the black church so we're going to listen to uh, another one of those black church classics this time as performed by the late great Aretha Franklin a very famous tune here called Precious Lord Take My Hand to get us into my conversation with Dr. Eugene Rogers
3: and leave-
2: think about African-Americans, right, uh, we think about, you know, mu- Black music starting, first of all, in the fields, right? and then obviously as a place to worship when we were allowed to sit in the back uh, at first. but <laughs> Quote, but unquote, allowed. Church, right, and, and church music really was <clears throat> the way, we didn't have the opportunity to go to concert halls, right? Mm-hmm. We weren't performing on the, those stages at that time, so church was in addition to home and the fields, church was that place where we got together and not only did we communicate spiritually, but politically, ethically, I mean, that is where, and so music for the black culture, that's where it all began Mm -hmm. uh, being in the church. And so therefore, for me, it's no wonder that many of us from the African-American community began our journeys also still having that training first take place at church before maybe we went on to the academy, if you will, Mm -hmm. to learn the more European traditional ways. So I I think it has everything to do with the way we We came to this country and began to express ourselves. And again, what we were allowed to do in terms of that.
0: Yeah. So considering that pervasiveness of music across black communities, not all black folks dedicate their lives and careers to it, you know, even though we all have that strong exposure. I wonder what inspired your decision to dedicate your life to it. You could have been a, a banker who engages music on Sunday, but you chose a different path.
2: You know, I actually had not planned to major in music, but I had a fantastic middle school African-American teacher mm. who gave me piano lessons. I begged her to give me piano lessons because I had a classmate who's actually in the DMV area, uh, Kestlin Braid, Dr. Kestlin Braid, who was playing the piano and I thought, oh, my God this is something I want to learn how to do. She was studying with my music teacher. I fast forward, I I asked for lessons with her and it was her who said to me, you know, you could do this for a living. And in that moment, it was the easiest story, a convincing line she could have given me. I went, well, that's what I'm going to do. If I can do this for a living, I just (laughs) need somebody to A, give me permission actually plant that seed that, yes, you can make a life of this. So I'm forever grateful for her. She's still living, she still comes to my concerts, but had it not been for her giving me the training to play piano and learning all those styles, then on the side, me singing RB and gospel on the side, it, I wouldn't be where I am today because I wasn't forced to choose. She didn't tell me that the way I sang or what my past music making was bad. Mm-hmm. She was simply saying, let's add to all that you have. And that seed, that's why I'm here. Seriously.
0: And we talk about representation all the time, at least in yes. in theory. I mean, I, I wonder if the fact that this woman was black and understood mm-hmm. where you were coming from uh, when it comes to your relationship with music, it, as it was already developing, was that significant? Did that matter so, at the end of the day? Absolutely. And
2: more than I even think I realized then, mm-hmm. the comfort level the trust that I had with her, the uh, feelings of validation that I received from her. Um, I think I I know it, Matt. I know it it absolutely mattered. Did I have, have have I had white mentors since? absolutely, who've made a
0: huge impact on my life, and I can list
2: them, but she was the first. She was definitely the
0: first. Yeah, so fast forward, you've had the opportunity to engage music in in many incredible ways, you know, currently leading the the Washington Chorus. Um, I I guess sticking to that conversation of representation, you know, we love Mm -hmm. celebrating Black firsts in our field, and, you know, you became a first when you became the conductor of the uh, Washington Chorus. I wonder how uh, that will manifest, what impact are you hoping to have as the first? Are you bringing something different to the table? How, how are you approaching that?
2: You know, I, I first and foremost believe musical excellence is musical excellence. I don't care where you come from. Mm-hmm. So for me, honestly, I I feel a responsibility, right? That I make sure that that being Black is not the only thing that is the asset of being yeah. the director of this group. I would like it to be equally that I, I bring a high level of musical excellence. I have a strong foundation to build on. My predecessors all did great work. So I just wanna make sure that my music making is on that same level and then add to the conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, the conversation is very broad. conversation of the dialogue we have as a community, the conversations we have around hiring artists the conversations we have around not using Black trauma as the only way to uh, to bring entertainment or to educate people, the the, the the conversations we have about include and having an inclusive community mm-hmm. where people feel like they have access to what we do, when we do it, how we do it, and that they feel welcome, that they belong in that environment. So for me, it's, It's way broader than that. I mean, so it's the musical excellence and all that goes along. And as far as I tell folks, this has to be a community thing. This is not top down. This has Mm -hmm. to be something we want as a community. The Washington Chorus, when they hired me, diversity, equity, and inclusion was a huge part of what they knew they wanted to expand and talk and think about. Therefore, I was right on board because... Um, that's, that's, I have lived experiences, right, Mm -hmm. uh, that I hope to add to that impact. Um, you know, I don't really know if anyone can set out thinking, I hope to, I, I don't really think about it that way. I just want to, I want to broaden that. I want to make people feel welcome, challenge the course and how they see themselves and how they see their music making Mm -hmm. and, and be excellent on that podium, And the impact, I don't really know how one, I don't think about that as much. I just
0: hope, I hope and pray it has an impact. And over here, you know, with the Triloquy community, we tend to be a little heavy on the instrumental side. So I'm sure there are a lot of people who aren't actually familiar with the Washington Chorus and its legacy. I, I wonder if you'll introduce this ensemble to folks who may have not heard of them.
2: Sure, the Washington Chorus has been in existence for over 60 years. Uh, they've won two Grammy Awards. They have, they're, they're one of the resident Symphonic courses with the National Symphony Orchestra. Um, they are their own nonprofit. So, in addition to being hired by National Symphony and the Baltimore Symphony and the National Philharmonic Orchestra, they also produce, self produce their own concerts at the Kennedy Center and Strathmore and various halls throughout the, the DMV. And it's about, a it ranges from 150 to 170 people on the roster at one wow. time. From all around the DMV area and beyond. Some people drive almost an hour and a half to come to rehearsals every week. Um, And most are non-professional um, musicians. Uh, they're very skilled amateur musicians, and then we have also a, a slew of professional musicians, also a, a strong number who are part of the group. So yeah, yeah, it's a it's a it's it's quite varied, and we want it to even be more varied, singing all sorts of styles <laughs> and welcoming all types of people. Um, I have a lot I can say about that, so I'll
0: pause if oh, sure. I can that question. <laughs> well, I mean, no, but, you know, what, what, I'm, what I'm thinking <laughs> about based on what you've said, I, I, I try to challenge and critique as much of our language as we can, you know, that we've sort of normalized over the years. And that word professional is a, is a part of it. I'm, I'm going back mm-hmm. to the Black church, you know, how many so-called professional singers are up there giving it up? Every Sunday, and could be singing anywhere. Absolutely. You know what? What? What's, yes, yes. What? What do you think about the way that we need to look at words mm-hmm. like professional and amateur, considering the incredible performances that we get from so-called amateurs, as you've just that, been speaking to?
2: You know, that is a. I think I, I appreciate that because it's something that I, I definitely. I have a broad perspective about what professional is. Mm-hmm. Uh, professional for me, to be honest, is are you whatever you whatever your claim to fame is or whatever your area of expertise is, are you functioning at the highest level possible? Mm. That And that varies. That doesn't for me does not mean you graduated from this institution and you have this degree. That is that's I mean, I know I know brilliant musicians from all styles who have no degrees in music. Mm So I I don't function from that kind of traditional idea of professional, really for me, professional means you make a living mostly Mm -hmm. by making music at the highest level, whatever genre that is. Yeah. Yeah, That's a
0: slightly different take on that. Yeah, I definitely appreciate that that take on it, and and would agree. You know, I uh, conducted so I, I, even though I'm on the instrumental side of things, I conducted uh, my first opera earlier this year, and working with singers was definitely a learning curve for me, but something I'm I'm glad to have under my belt. I wonder, yeah. I wonder if you could speak to, um, you know, or for, speak from the perspective of someone who's regularly tasked with dealing with singers and instrumentalist? Has, has there been a challenge over the years learning how to transpose the French horn part or what has that look like for you?
2: You know, um, because I started off really as a, I tell people, a church boy down south singing. I And then I became more skilled at Western classical music. Mm-hmm. My journey uh, with instrumentalists came, has come slowly Um, And once I began to get my master's more formalized academy training, that's when I saw myself broader than a singer and a choral conductor, but really as a conductor. I now... For the most part feel um pretty comfortable working with instrumentalists and singers you know pretty much equally as long as i have enough time with the score but Mm -hmm. that is something that i have forever you know worked on and i work on still if i'm in an instrumental score you better believe i'm spending a time with it so that unlike singers who may spend three months on a score I, I'm doing, obviously, the Justice Symphony. We co-commissioned that at the University of Michigan and the Washington Chorus. Mm-hmm. Michigan now is preparing that work. The singers have been working on that since the end of February. Okay, I have the first reading with the orchestra Wednesday. And they will have basically three re- rehearsals with me, maybe four, and then we've got the concert. So you know, that's probably the biggest difference is you've got to come in ready to go. Right. Whereas with singers, you have time to develop that idea, rehearse it, fine tune tweak, unless it's a professional choir where mm-hmm. you are coming together for a project for two days. Yeah. Um, and so that's that's probably the biggest difference for me is walking in the first day, I could perform it. That's mm-hmm. that is that I had to learn that skill and get comfortable with that. Ability, because again, I'm you as a singer and a choral conductor. You're used to working and working and working, and you just don't have that time.
0: That's <laughs> right. Gotta, it's too expensive. Yes, <laughs> <There's>, exactly. <laughs> there, there must be a choral techniques or principles or ideas that you bring to the orchestral podium. Maybe getting the second mm-hmm. violins to actually breathe. I wonder if if that's been a part of it.
2: You know, for me, I I just naturally, because I am a singer first, right? Mm -hmm. And then a conductor, and then of all styles. I, for me, breathing is essential. It's just based on sound, right? So I hope players say they feel like they can breathe and play more freely. That's what I hope. Um, you know, I definitely feel like I have a good relationship with players when I work with them. Um, and I hope that's part of it. Um, uh, I don't know. I mean, it's just, it's more subconscious for me. I do think the biggest difference is I bring, I'm i also able to communicate where text stress is because a lot of that music is based on text Mm -hmm. so i'm bringing out emphasis like no you can't accent be three it has to go on one because that's where the stress of that word is Mm -hmm. i know that that's obviously a difference that i bring when i'm doing
0: uh choral orchestra works yeah Mm -hmm. yeah but before i uh ask you about Uh, a knee on the neck and the uh and the upcoming justice symphony i want to go back to 2016 2017 so whether it was through uh, a recording or a live performance you helped introduce much of the world most of the world to Joel Thompson's Seven Last Words of the Unarmed. I wonder what that project did for your career or maybe even your relationship with music as a means of activism.
2: Well, that's a thank you for that question. Uh that you know Joel and I um he's definitely like family to me now because I that work um, changed both of our lives and it was not, that was never the intent. Right, um, <laughs> that's what you I'm getting at. Uh, uh, no, not at all. I mean, I, I actually wrestled really different because that was 2014 when he sent me the score and mm. said, I've never had a performance of this. Your name has been given to me. I'd love for you to consider it. And I sat on that email for probably a good month. Wow. um, Before I, because I couldn't process how I, as a Black man, who was feeling very impersonal about all of this, working with a choir of 100 mostly non-Black men, how and, a, and an ensemble that prided itself on never doing what quote unquote political things. Mm. How was I going to bring this work so that, and I have, a, and people have heard me say this before, I have a very strong opinion about telling the truth on stage mm. that even if you don't believe it, we have to think and feel believe that you do. Mm. That is the job of a performer. And how was I able, when you're dealing with real lives? Real stories. How were we able to bring that to, in a way that was tr- that they were telling truth, or it it what felt like they were telling truth? Mm-hmm. That that was a huge journey, and I had to figure out the way in. After that, the the piece sort of has it took on its own life, and it I think for me, I because I did not I had to intentionally avoid being overly political or directly political, it took me a long time to really process my feelings about critical discourse and social justice.
3: Mm.
2: Because I, for me, it was another conversation about loss, that those stories, because the concept that we framed it around was love, life, and loss. Mm. So for me, I had, in order to get the buy-in from many different beliefs, Republican, Democrat, you, you name it, not African American. I had to find a universal connection. In my opinion, we can all hopefully relate to loss and lost yeah. lives, regardless of where you think you be- what you think you believe, or who's right or who's wrong. Let's start with where we agree, mm-hmm. and then let's go on. And that's where I had to start in 2014. And from there, I began to realize and see. The piece, the Joelle's work, the words uh and the pictograms of Sharon Bargi and the way it's composed, the how it could open doors for a lot of thought about police brutality, racism in this country, social injustice. But that is not where I felt like I could start to get the buy-in of the right. community with which with whom I worked at that time. And so now um, my my life in terms of I'm not afraid, that piece definitely, I took a lot of heat, more than I ever realized that I would, because mm-hmm. I thought I had done the, the, you know, I did the good thing, you know, I put it in this <laughs> package of loss, aren't they going to see the, no, and I was shocked even with that package, not the students, but the community members, even with the theme of loss, mm. for them it was you were simply being political and you're honoring thugs and those exact words were used wow. and it was through the courage that i realized that i had to bring and and the belief that and the knowledge that a i was i was giving my students a, a, a strong academic experience as well as a musical one and there was enough Um, craftsmanship in the work that if you wanted to go political you could if you wanted to stay simply with the musical context of what joelle had written the work had its own merit and i for me i would have talked anyone down about that because Mm -hmm. that is education providing a door and so it definitely gave me more courage to to take to Um, It gave me more courage to embrace who I am as an African-American. It gave me more courage to bring stories that are not always comfortable to the concert hall and to the stage. It gave me more courage to to really dialogue with individuals, right, as about this or that. And so I don't think I would be doing a lot of what I'm doing today, probably, had I not been brave enough to program that work because it was... For Joel and me both, it it was a huge turn
0: in our lives and our careers. When Absolutely. You- when you talk about truth from the stage, you reminded me of a conversation that I uh, had with Louise Toppin, who I'm sure oh, yes. you know. Uh, <laughs> we, we were talking specifically about um, the spiritual and white choirs singing spirituals and her mm-hmm. approach uh, to that. So I, I guess sort of along those lines, in the process of uh, rehearsing Seven Last Words and, and the many other works that are, are on, on those similar paths and dealing with students who are, are not Black, I wonder I what some of the conversations have been has has anything been enlightening for you as as you've engaged these students from non black backgrounds?
2: Um, well, I'm because you know so now I I do this repertoire with students and community members because the mm. Washington Chorus is also collaborating with Sphinx on the work. Um, it was supposed to be this January, it, due to COVID, Omicron surge then. It's now uh, 2023, where they'll be performing it soon. And this A Knee on the Neck by Adolphus Health Store. Mm-hmm. We are programming that with all community folks. Howard is joining us, but they're a very small part of it. So it's been mostly non-African Americans. And you know, I, I have a fundamental belief, uh, several things that you must, the work must be able to stand on its own musically. I do fundamentally believe that. Mm-hmm. Um, and in, because if, if the work stands on its own, I believe there are some people who will begin to listen then, because once the, the what music does, it, it opens us up in ways that words sometimes don't to be honest, because we're hearing a lot of words on the media, in the media and news, we hear a lot of that. But the art form does something to the soul and the spirit, and it is then that the conversations I find to be a lot easier to have. Um, I always talk about there are some things that are that are black or white. If you're singing a spiritual and the composer has indicated that the the, the word is du de will, not d will or the will, right? that is then you have to be educated about dialect that is not an optional text change if the composer has indicated that they want that arrangement to use that dialect
3: Mm -hmm. so that's
2: to me we're not this is not a debate this is what this is stylistically now i have to give you context around that so you understand that it is an actual language and it is not you uh, imitating someone, so I think probably the conversations I have are knowing when things are opinions. So let's at least give the open the floor for opinions, and when things are actually performance practice and styles and fact, and let's and then provide context for that. So yeah. I went a long way to tell you about that, but that's how I deal with predominantly non-African Americans. this repertoire i think i have to i do a lot of there's a whole lot of going on going on here in my mind where i am deciphering between okay what is an opinion where i need to have the floor be such that people can embrace and discuss and what is context and style that people need to understand Mm -hmm. to be respectful
0: to perform it so when you approach works like knee on the neck with your experience with uh, Joelle Thompson's work in mind. Uh, are do, do you feel like there's a, a cumulative sort of emotional uh, approach to this? Or are you starting again with each piece as far as engaging that relationship of police brutality, trauma, and Western classical music?
2: Well, because of the way a knee on the neck isn't written, uh, George, um, excuse me, I want to get his name right, Herbert Martin, Dr. Herbert Martin, has provided almost a libretto that does not, that dealing, the George Floyd piece is really a a small part. Uh, It actually, the piece is actually about a Black man and a woman's experience from slavery, dealing with their mother,
3: Mm. who's
2: giving you context about your, interactions with, with police figures or just authority figures. And then it goes to moments where it you feel like you are a slave. It, you have some pom- components where it talks about a slave being subjected to power and authority. So the context is sort of different. It allows you to go in and out of actually many parts of the African-American experience. So for me, I approach this work really somewhat separately because of the text he mm. set it up in sort of a, a sort of a journey a, a black life experience if you will that obviously deals with definitely george floyd's uh murder and then he ends it with the hymn of unity a song of coming together so um i i, I give context to it and i definitely personally approach it as a very different. Uh, not different. I, I wouldn't say different, but it is definitely there's slight nuance that's different than the seven last words of the unarmed that only that is dealing with those seven victims and their exact words and their their encounters with the police. Whereas this is dealing with a narrative of a black experience in America. Mm-hmm. So I give that context to the choir. We're talking about it from a broader, which I think is a, if you think about it. This is what that's really so much of what the racial reconciliation has been or or the racial reckoning, if you will, Mm -hmm. has been is, yeah, you all are looking at George Floyd. We need to go all the way back to the black experience in America. This is this is this you're now seeing what black people have been dealing with on some level since they've been in this country. And I think that's really what Herbert Martin does with his libretto uh, in this work
0: i love that approach and it's so beautiful but what i can't help but to to just acknowledge is that not only have we always known the story in some way again when we're talking about that broader narrative not only have we always known the story the story in some way has always been in song going back to you know what we sing in church and okay so for for that musical narrative to be making it uh into these predominantly white spaces Mm -hmm. do you feel like progress is being made is is this finally teaching a broader uh, American populace what our story is (laughs) i'm I'm not naive (laughs) and i'm sorry to chuckle but it's just it's it's hard it's hard not to think that because it's like well here it is for the hundred hundredth time do y'all hear it now you know i i will say this
2: um any progress is progress Mm. OK, yeah, it may not be as fast. It may not be as as broad as we'd like it to happen, but it is progress. And I don't want to I don't want to discount the progress and the work that I see some individuals making and, do, and, and having. So I will say that we, we still have a ways to go. Mm-hmm. And the reason why these works have to continue to be done, because a not only remembering them, he uh, Adolphus added three names to Herbert's text. He added George Floyd, it was not in there. He added Emmett Till, he mm-hmm. added Breonna Taylor because these names need to be remembered but it also is so that we won't forget because some people are in the business of checking boxes and yeah. moving on and works like this have to continue. So we there's no box to check this is a journey. This is, we need to keep remembering so we don't go backwards so we can continue to keep going forward mm-hmm. with, uh, with so, uh, so much that we still see happening from our community. So I, I think, I, I'm hoping progress is made. I mean, what we can say is pre-George Floyd, not nearly as many conversations were being had, right not nearly as many black artists were being hired or commissioned not nearly as many works were on the concert stage would we have actually seen fire shut up in my bones at the met doing seeing a step show right in the middle of the i don't know if George, i don't know if that would have happened so that yeah. is progress sitting in that audience for the premiere of that that opera wow I, that was life changing for me i never thought i would ever experience that so to, I don't want to deny that progress. Is it enough? No, but it is happening.
0: You you mentioned uh, fire shut up in my bones, so I I have to ask you. So <laughs> I so I went. I, I flew from Minnesota to New York because I wanted okay. to be there for that historic moment. And what I, I I feel comfortable saying this. What what I walked away from was thinking. I wonder what that score would have sounded like with an orchestra that had that same foundational experience of black church music as, as we do. How how do you, how have you traversed, uh, I guess, transferring that sort of experience into, you know, this music that has that black narrative in it? How do you, how do you teach the musical flavor of black music, black American music to musicians who may not have that experience? You know, I've only done, (laughs) that's the
2: thing, I've only done the seven last words with musicians of color, except for my pianist, who plays from, because he's the pianist at that time, um, very much is in tune and interested in learning and trying to figure that out, and so Mm -hmm. he was all in, and there was definitely, we have a spiritual bond that It really, that that goes deeper than our our own racial backgrounds, believe it or not. And so I'm convinced of that, but the the Sphinx Symphony Orchestra did that with me completely. Now the Justice Symphony will be premiered by all non, for mostly non-African Americans. So I'm about to learn how I can do it with the vocalists because I know how to model. I know how to tell a story. I know how to bring them in. And I plan to do the exact same thing with the players. Um, And I'm curious if that will carry over, you know, I think a lot of it is also about one's willingness. If you come from a school of thought, where you already think this music is beneath you, Mm. or that this music is not as legit, I don't know if there is much of, that anybody can do to get you to really give yourself into that. See, there is an openness. Mm-hmm. So my biggest thing is hopefully having these musicians to be open, and I will simply talk about that. This I will I will start that rehearsal with that. This requires a level of openness and a level of flexibility that sometimes you don't have in other styles. So it, it will be an experience, but you have to you have to call the call out the elephant in the room. Yeah, <laughs> you know I mean if you really want to give people a chance to play and perform instrumentally from uh, at least try to gain what, you know, vocalists do so well. So that's an interesting thought. I had never thought about that. I was just (laughs) so happy to see it happening. Um, And done. I did can say that I respect very much Yannick's commitment on that podium. Mm -hmm. I mean, that man conducted that piece with his whole heart. I, I don't think you would see him conducting Verity any differently, and that was moving to me. I had a seat where I could, I had my eyes right on him as a conductor. <laughs> yep. And I was deeply moved by his commitment to every style of that. Um, you know, that's for me what I mostly look for, bring that same level of commitment and heart and soul that you would to what some call legit or canonical
0: repertoire. Do you ever feel that pressure when you're on the podium, the black folks in the audience saying, OK, well, let's let's make sure he bringing it. You know, do, do you ever feel that?
2: <laughs> you know, I don't, because I'm always going to try to bring it. I'm going to bring it to my best. And if it's not good enough for you, then, brother, you wouldn't. It, nothing would anyway. So
0: <laughs> you said we're going to pray for you.
2: <laughs> I'm just going to do my best. You know, I'm going to I don't change. I'm going to bring that to Mozart as well. Yes. You know, I'm preparing the course on Mozart Requiem and a knee on the neck. And I think those singers will tell you I am as hard on them as on the Mozart as I am on the Hailstorm. Yeah, Yeah. I mean, good music is good music. That is the that's the that is the impact that I hope I do have on some folks' lives.
0: Yep. You mentioned uh, Damian Jeter's Justice Symphony. I wonder what you can uh, tell us about it. It doesn't seem like trauma. It seems like justice, at least in the title.
2: Yeah, so he opens with um he basically uses music mostly from the civil rights era. Mm. Um and and really talking about the black experience, the songs that have helped us work through tough times. And he and the, and it's 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 um the sandwich with uh, Precious Lord take my hand, which we know also even though it's a gospel piece has gotten got Thomas Dorsey himself through a tough time, but also African-Americans from a spiritual level, that work, that song and what it has meant. But he opens with keep your eyes on the prize and, and treats that in many different ways. I mean, it feels very unstable with all the mixed meter, like you're trying to hold on. And he emphasizes, hold on, hold on. It's never, it's not done. And then he goes into the third, like his precious Lord in the third movement, he deals with songs like, "Old oh Freedom, we shall overcome, but with a slight. A, he uses the words, but totally changes the melody, mm. in a way that emphasizes not to, not yesterday and not tomorrow, but right now. Yeah, we shall overcome. And there's moments where he, it goes right now, and there's silence. Because his idea is, he, this is a song we've been singing for so long. Are we, will we, have we mm-hmm. overcome? Um, we shall not be moved. Then he goes into to um, lift every voice and sing. But again, he rarely uses the traditional melody. He creates a new one. Lift every voice and sing. Till earth and heaven ring, ring with the harmonies. It's a, it's a very, it's, a, it's a, it, and and the altos. We march towards justice. Mm. It just totally changes the melody on that. So with the idea, let's listen in a new way to these songs we sing and then he brings us back at the very end to the the same melody that we know and ends with, till victory is won. And it's just the choir alone that ends. The orchestra drops out and it's the choir, till victory in unison is won. I mean, it's a real powerful vocal statement.
0: At yeah. Wow, so, that sounds incredible. I'm going to tell you what you have me thinking about. Again, the the and the closer that I get to uh choral ensembles and and working uh with <laughs> singers in my work, there's something that I'm hearing over and over again that I haven't really heard on the orchestral side of things, the idea that in front of black audiences, when you know, when we hear those words, when we hear those familiar uh lyrics and melodies, we respond to that from our seats. And when you deal with other audiences, what I hear especially singers say is they'll just be staring at you the whole time. And there's and there's no interaction between uh the stage and the audience. I wonder how you deal. I'm I'm sure you know what I'm talking about.
3: I
2: definitely how do know what you what you're traverse that. About. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and part
2: of it is I always love the concerts when I can speak mm-hmm. and give people permission. You have to understand if you've come from a culture of religious background where you are to be, to be respectful is to be silent. Mm-hmm. If you come from a concert background experience where to be respectful is to be absolutely still and silent, then you don't know any other way to hear a piece. So I, I enjoy those times when I can actually sort of say to enjoy this music. We want to hear from you a little bit while it's happening. (laughs) We want to know you're enjoying it. Let us know about it because that's not a part of some people's background experience. So I do think when you do works like this, it is helpful to give people that permission. And I hope to do that. We open with another work and then we do this. And I plan to speak uh, and give folks
0: permission to be a little bit more actively engaged (laughs) with us. So what do you think? it's gonna to take to get us there on a more regular basis for mm-hmm. uh, audiences to participate in some way with what's going on on yeah. stage every time they go to the concert mm-hmm. hall and not just when it's time to hear mm-hmm. the Justice Symphony.
2: Yeah, yeah, that's, a, you know, I, I I don't know if I can answer that. I will say that I think more exposure is one of the key things, right? This is why we have to keep, if, if these are one-off experiences, every five years they hear a work a diverse work or um i i think that's when it's good that's when you'll have uh some issues but i think i think in general um fostering that community with your fostering that way of relating with your community is the best way all Mm -hmm. the time and so um I, i i don't have a full answer to that i i think that you're right it's something that definitely the concert experience definitely varies from, from those of us who come from different communities, and I think it's just going to take some time, the more yep. people get used to that and experience it and feel the freedom to do that.
0: Yeah. Well, mm-hmm. how can folks uh, learn more about you, uh, learn more about your upcoming uh, performances and, uh, and and all of that?
2: Yes, well, I, I just, I, first and foremost, I think people should go to the uh, thewashingtonchorus.org. Um, that website will tell you about the Justice Symphony performances and, and uh, Rafe Vaughn-Williams, Donanobi's Anobi's Pacem, both works featuring Karen Slack as soprano um, and Roshan Etizadi's work as well. Um, that's on our website. That's June 12th. Uh, at the Kennedy Center, and then this new work, A Knee on the Neck and Mozart Requiem, you can find on our website as well, and that's uh, that would have passed. We would have done that um, several weeks ago by the time this comes through, but hopefully we have a good showing for that yeah. concert. But June 12th, the WashingtonCourse.org is where they can go and find out about uh, that Justice and Peace concert is what we're calling it.
0: Well, I'm going to outro us with an excerpt from um, Exigence's performance at Sphinx Connect 2020. You know, in, in that finale, I went back and watched it this morning. You literally say, I wrote it down, we don't know what's going to happen in <laughs> 2020. But, but one thing that we will do is keep on to hope and vision. Okay, so now right. we know what happened in 2020, right? <laughs> so with, with, with all of that in <clears throat> mind, I wonder what is that hope? And that vision that you have moving forward. Mm-hmm.
2: Wow, um, I can speak about this from many perspectives. I would say, as a as a as a world, gosh, my hope is that we don't. I, I really hope we don't have to continue to try to convince people of our worth. I am that. If I'm tired of anything, that's what I'm tired of. Uh, I, I I that's the hope that I have. That that it just would. That if gone are the days where we feel like we've got to really make sure everybody's comfortable. That, that and we should be, we should never have to convince people of anyone's worth, period. I don't care what you are, what your background is, what your identity is, that's what my biggest hope and prayer is. We're gonna take your way back. How many of you have enjoyed this conference? end this conference without celebrating because we don't know what's going to happen in 2020 but we got One thing we will keep is hope and vision this song speaks a little bit about that Levante come on just the other day some friends came to me they said Vontae how can you smile when your world is crumbling down I said here's my secret when I want to cry I just take a look around and I see that I'm getting by and I hold on. Hold on. Change is
0: coming. Change is coming. Hold hold on. On. Hold on. We were sitting right there in that room. Isn't it something? You know, that, that's where uh, one, one of the things I, I closed with doctor Eugene Rogers in our conversation where, you know, he says we don't know what's coming in twenty twenty. Well boy did something come, you know, but <laughs> the but the important message big you know no matter what's coming to hold on you know to be solid in 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 that regard you know that's something that my my buddhism teaches you know just having that that unwavering happiness and you know also when uh eugene speaks to just affirming you know Everyone celebrating everyone's worth, affirming everyone's worth, you know, all of these things that are just fully captured in this American classical music that we can spread throughout communities if we affirm it as such in our spaces. Incredible conversation there with uh, Dr. Eugene Rogers. I appreciate him taking the time. You know, knowing what you know now about ensembles like Exigence, uh, the Sphinx, Conference, everything Mm -hmm. we went through in 2020 beyond COVID and you're working uh, on this podcast, you know, the next time uh, that Sphinx conference is able to happen, are you going to approach it differently? What's going to be your vibe going into that space, having survived what we have all survived?
1: I think that I'm going to keep the same mindset that I had at the first one, which is to largely keep my mouth shut and listen a lot. Sure. And uh, you know, you might remember in the hotel room for that one interview, I just sat there and I ran. I asked two questions mm-hmm. that whole time with uh, David Norville and yeah, shout out to Dave, Licale in Washington, and uh, Titus Underwood. Yeah, we're all there. Um, you know, they talk about a sermon. You mm-hmm. know, you get it right there. Um, I would keep my mouth shut and listen a lot.
0: Yeah. Okay. Well, um, I'm going to need you to say a couple things in this week's fourth we'll movement. S- we'll though. see. <laughs> but we're going to get into it. Uh, we were talking a bit about the Grammys. Uh, shout out to Represent Classical. They uh, 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 published my Grammy piece today. I'll have that linked in the description. Just thinking about the way that certain bits of representation and, you know, in, in celebrating one thing, shine the light away from from other folks you know the way that we can celebrate Florence price's music and it can get a grammy because it fits into those parameters of what people have decided are classical but other bits of you know anyway all with all that being said i think it is something of note that the late great florence price got that grammy for best orchestral recording so uh one of the record one of the pieces on that recording as performed by the philadelphia orchestra was her third symphony and the end of that third symphony just ends so cutely just adorably and Mm there are even some trills in there so we'll use that to get us into this week's fourth movement Getting blown a kiss at the end of a conversation or somebody winking at you. Just something really cute. I love it. All right. Well, we're here in the fourth movement where uh, Scott and I are going to just speak some things that you won't hear on some of these other podcasts. Isn't that what you said last week, a podcast like none other or something? Mm -hmm. All right. So first and foremost, um, I was sick to my stomach, Scott, when I read in the news that there will be no charges against police in the Amir Locke shooting for Mm -hmm. folks who may not remember, or for some reason, don't know, can you bring us up to speed on who Amir Locke was and what the situation was?
1: It was right around December, wasn't it? I I believe so. Okay. So the shooting actually happened sometime in December. It was a a Minneapolis police were executing a no knock warrant. Amir was sleeping in the apartment that had its door busted down. And uh, within Uh, You know, in less than 10 seconds of the door being knocked in, he was shot and killed. He wasn't even named in the warrant.
0: You have said this about certain situations. I'm not recalling it right now, but. There was a gun in the apartment and the gun was legal as far as I know. That's neither here nor there. He Mm -hmm. didn't deserve to die for it. My point in bringing up the fact that there was a gun in the apartment for me is a testament to the fact that every gun rights, redneck, excuse my French, racist person down south should have been up in arms Mm -hmm. about this situation. Because what's to keep a police officer from busting down your door and seeing a weapon and shooting you? In the same way that they shot him, right. and 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 getting off scot free, they're not even being an investigation. We have to we have to shift this system, Scott, to where anytime someone dies at the hand of a police officer it has to go to court it can't be an internal investigation it can't be something that folks look into and dismiss of, as they have this if a person dies at the hands of the state that is something that has to be dug into and investigated who 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 pays who pays the price for this other than a mere lie It's it's ridiculous.
1: It's another thing to point out that originally the report said that Amir was armed and aimed the gun at the officers. I mean, we have the
0: video now to show that they were lying.
1: Right. We wanted to make the distinction that Amir was laying down, covered, and was in the midst of getting up when he was shot and killed.
0: I mean, people should be horrified by that fact. As we sit here right now in Studio G, there is a universe in which a police officer has the wrong apartment or whatever, knocks down this door, decides to shoot me, and everything is fine. He goes home and goes to work the next day. That is a situation that exists and that we see here. My prayers go out to the family and everyone involved. For me, Scott, this puts to, to bed the bad Apple narrative when it comes to the, to the police because it highlights a system That has to be dismantled, a system that oppresses people, a system that does not affirm the humanity of all people, because you're not affirming the humanity of individuals, certainly not a mere lock, if you can go in there and shoot him and there's no price to pay. Now, the police are only the foot soldiers in this system. I see the courts. Uh, the folks that make these laws and rules, the lobbyists who raise money for these police uh, departments, all of this is in that system. And even the highest court in the land, looping back to where we were uh, beginning today, that can be tied into there. That's what folks like T, that's what folks like me, that's what a lot of activists think about when we talk about uh, defunding the police, even uh abolishing the police the police as a part of this system that is not built to keep people safe that is not built to protect us but is built to protect its own when someone on the outside loses their life Mm. um wrapping up here we got to talk about a man named tim scott okay let me just um let let me let me let me read something real quick i'm reading here from the washington post um the headline is American supported Jackson. They're talking about Katanji Brown Jackson. Why didn't more Republican senators? I won't read the whole thing here, but it says three Republican senators, only three, Susan Collins of Maine, Lisa Murkowski of Alaska, and Mitt Romney of Utah, crossed the aisle to support Jackson and get her put on the um, Supreme Court. Now, there were a lot of folks who voted against her, so... You know, I want to say that first. But one person in particular who I want to speak to is Tim Scott of South Carolina, a black senator on the Republican side who, for some reason, decided that he was not going to support Ketanji Brown Jackson for the Supreme Court. Now, this isn't somebody who, you know, uh, I'm talking about Tim Scott. This isn't somebody who is questioning the role of the Supreme Court and the way it's been politicized in his decision. This is somebody who many people say, and I agree with them, is trying to pony up and seem like one of the good blacks for certain Republican people and for certain constituencies and not supporting her. Let Let me read some of his statements in response to the backlash. Tim Scott said, I did not vote for her for a lower court because I believe that her judicial philosophy is inconsistent with what is the best interest of our judiciary. It's not Biden's Supreme Court. It's America's Supreme Court. The number of her cases that have been overturned only reinforces the fact that this requires a deeper look. And the deeper I look, the more I realize that her judicial philosophy is antithetical to mine. All right. He's on record for not voting for the first black woman. On the Supreme Court, do you think he voted for Amy Coney Barrett? Of course. Do you think he voted for Brett Kavanaugh? I'm certain of it. Okay, but voting for Kataji Brown Jackson was outside of his purview. This is why I want to bring this up. This isn't a. This isn't about highlighting him. And speaking to this politically, I want to highlight Tim Scott as an example of some of the Black people and people of color that exist in these predominantly white spaces and can be used, even tokenized to uh, allege diversity, diverse thought, equity. But in fact, this is a person who is standing in the way of those things. That is a thing. In our classical spaces, as uncomfortable as it is, and we have to begin to talk about how all of us, white folks included, how we can engage the conversation of determining tokenism, where it exists, and pinpointing ways in which people of color are positioned to prevent progress and to prevent equity for people of color.
1: The only thing that I can think of right now being on the spot is probably update my Sphinx response. And instead of keeping my mouth shut and doing a lot of listening, I would probably start asking questions Mm -hmm. because if you can get somebody talking, you know, you, you ask the right question and get them talking, you can kind of start to throw in your own comments. Like, well, don't you think that that stance is against your own interest Mm -hmm. as a black person? Okay. Yep. Yep. And if not, help me understand why you don't
0: see that. So conversations like those, I, th- I think, I, th- I think that's good. Just initiations like those, you know, uh, I-, I listened to an interview uh, with Toni Morrison a couple of weeks ago and the interviewer asks her basically, so what are we going to do about racism? And you know what Toni Morrison <laughs> said? I'm, tick- I'm tickled. Think about it. Tori Mor- Toni Morrison said, well, that's not my problem. And I understand why a lot of white folks May say I'm here to listen. I'm here to sit back and look. And and many in most spaces, maybe I'll I'll even say that is completely important. But at the end of the day, racism is not something that is going to fix itself, and it's certainly not something that black folks should be charged with fixing. So there has to be action out of all of us. We we all have a role to play in in this conversation. I feel like we can't lean on our being men to stay outside of conversations regarding dismantling the patriarchy. You know, there are things that we can do. There are, there is a role that men play in dismantling the patriarchy. Yes, stepping back and listening and um and honoring spaces for women exclusively for women x y and z. Yes, that's a part of it, but a part of it is also being prepared to speak to Uh, The the patriarchy, where we see it prop up, whoever we see that come from, as uncomfortable as it is, Scott, and I hope I don't have to eat these words, I'm not giving anybody permission to say anything, you know, because cause and effect, and, and, and I'll leave it there, but I feel like white people can't lean on, I'm here to listen, I'm here to offer space all the time. I think we need to get to the point in the conversation to where there's action and something being done. So well, that's I, just, why I, I just hope to inspire that.
1: That's why I upgraded my Sphinx answer to start asking questions. And I, and I would challenge white folks to do this. Imagine that you're going into work somewhere where you're the only white person. And how do you think that you might code switch to get on? How do you think that you might change? Or would you not? You know, so I, I have to flip it around like that. And so the only way that I would engage this person would be to start asking questions and see if <laughs> see if my see if I've got the wrong idea about them. Does any of this make sense? No, it does.
0: I, I like that approach. I like that approach a lot, just clarifying questions. And maybe you already know the answers. Maybe you know that the black person who was hired to do X, Y, and Z within the arts institution you work for was hired there because this is someone who falls in line with the status quo who won't challenge the continued programming of Baccarini and Hayton, you know, who won't do X, Y, and Z. But that doesn't mean that you aren't empowered to do something or even inspire that black person to live their truth. Now. That's not to say that you won't, you couldn't get yelled at or cussed out, or somebody saying you need to be put back in your place, X, Y, and Z, whatever. But I believe that if your heart is in it, and if your heart is really in the right place, whatever critique that comes your way, you can deal with that. You can either learn from it, or you can say, "Oh, well, this is just somebody tap dancing for their boss." And now, don't say that out loud. Now, <laughs> no. no, if you have to think it, I guess. But my 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 point, Scott, is that. I want us to get to a point in the discourse where white people feel empowered to actually be that anti-racist, to actually speak up. To act against the racism everywhere that that racism pops up, even if it pops up within the fellowship programs, within the DEI initiatives, within whatever you're doing. If you're seeing a perpetuation of a white supremacist Eurocentric system in place, that has to be challenged and you can do it if your heart is in the right place. I believe that you'll be successful despite critiques, because one way or another, you will set yourself apart as someone who isn't sitting back and doing nothing, but someone who is moving forward and saying something. Shout out to all of the white people out there who had something to say about Tim Scott, because I agree with you. We are, we're going to continue our nuanced and multifaceted and multi-layered conversation when we talk about folks like Katanji Brown Jackson. When we talk about folks on the art side of it. When we talk about all these Black people that are p- platformed out here playing the repertoire, as it were, and perpetuating those systems. We can have both and conversations. It's the both end conversations that're going to get us somewhere when it comes to this genre and to decolonizing it. Thank you, everyone. We'll see you next week. <laughs>